Hey everyone, it's Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy, amongst other things. Today we're going to talk about a summary of everything that's happened with Russia and Ukraine and the war. I'll be talking a lot about the financial aspects of this, but I do want to highlight that this, the most important part of all of this is the Ukrainian people and the fighting that they're doing for themselves and their country. That is the most important thing, but I am going to be talking about the financial and the global impact of sanctions, of what's happening with the Russian Central Bank, and just markets in general. This piece is in partnership with the Freedom Index. There is power in being in a position to direct assets and we can use that power for good, especially in emerging markets. Perth told the Freedom Index work to solve the problem of autocracy concentration in market capitalization weighted emerging market indices by using 100% freedom weighted approach for investors who want to support freedom in their EM allocations. The Life and Liberty Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index is a freedom weighted EM equity strategy that uses personal and economic freedom metrics as primary factors in their investment selection process. Of course, not investment advice, just a huge fan and have been a huge fan of what Perth is doing. And I think that if you're looking for a solution of things to invest in during this time, it's a great one for you to check out, but not investment advice. And this is a usual disclaimer that everything I do, especially right now, is a synthesis and a compilation of everybody else's work. So my main goal is not to be like Kyla's hot takes on what's going on, but rather to be like, here's a summary of what I've been reading this week, what I've been seeing a lot of confusion, a lot of disinformation out there. So in this piece, I want to cover the concept of financial warfare, especially in light of dollar dominance, some brief history on Fortress Russia, updated sanctions, energy markets, agriculture, and the subsequent inflationary pressure, then Russian monetary policy and central bank response, both from a money market funding and a reserve scope, and then a more focused view on companies and people. And finally, I'll get more into crypto, the US market response, and including what Jerome Powell has said. So the pillars of financial warfare, it's been approximately a week since the invasion. Putin is not happy. And the most important part of all of this is that the Ukrainian people are still fighting for their lives and their country. Russians are on the streets protesting and Putin has threatened nuclear warfare and shelled near a nuclear plant on Thursday night. And there's actually never been a military attack on an operating nuclear plant. So things are escalating pretty quickly. Another weird part of all of this is that warfare does exist on several different fronts, including psychological, cyber, chemical, economic, and more. The economic warfare has been the primary tool that the West has wielded during this fight. So the weaponization of finance, as it's been called by some, the dollar and access to it has become its own military tank. But there are some broad worries about the impact of the financial versus physical warfare in a globalized economy, impacts of globalization, both the efficiencies and the effects are felt when the broader supply chain falls apart, as we saw during the pandemic and as we're seeing again now. When one country invades another, you can't and shouldn't do business with that country anymore. But when we have a just-in-time, everything-is-connected economy that makes the things a little bit difficult from a functionality perspective. If all of a sudden one of the biggest trading partners gets booted from the system, that's not super great from, oh yeah, my fertilizer that I use to grow all my crops and feed the country view. And so the West has been sort of dancing around sanctions with Russia, sort of choking them out of access to the outside economy. Important to note that not all countries are sanctioning, for example, Mexico, but the West recently came out swinging by removing Russia from SWIFT, sanctioning their central bank, however, still allowing energy payments to come through because of the inflationary worries about losing access to oil, gas, and agriculture. But this is a two-player game, Russia versus the world. Right now, the world, including China, is making it economically clear that Russia is not welcome unless they stop invading. We're getting into this concept of fortress Russia. An interesting thing about all of this is that Putin rose to power initially because he was the guy who's going to save Russia from the economic pain of the 1990s. And fast forward a decade or so, and that is clearly no longer the case. Russia has been sanctioned before, and it came under sanctions in 2014 
2019 after they invaded Crimea, and since then they've sort of prepped for round two of sanctions, exporting more than they imported, reducing their debt levels, de-dollarizing, doing everything right. And oil money is of course a really helpful tool to pay down creditors ahead of schedule. So they've been sort of prepping for this for a long time, and things were going okay. As the OECD's December report highlighted, Russia was grooving, right, with an expected 2021 GDP growth at 4.3%. But now not so much. They were prepped for 2014 sanctions this time around, but 2022 sanctions were a completely different animal. Russia is now struggling by the West design, with the ruble turning into rubble and their financial pearly gates are crumbling. The UN finally got it together to tell them to stop. Thanks, UN. But these sanctions are going to be pretty painful. The West keeps rolling out new ones, like the expanded oligarch list from Thursday, but these are really the main ones. The sanctions on the central bank are a pretty big deal, and the increased sanctions on all banks. You saw banks drop by, you know, 70 to 40 percent on the London stock market, and the ruble fell 25 percent on the central bank sanction alone. And the goal here is just like, hey, your financial system is not going to be able to finance your war. And then, you know, Russia was removed from SWIFT. That prevents them from using SWIFT for cross-border messaging with other financial institutions, which shuts them out of the broader financial system. They have their alternative, SBFS, but that's like not really an alternative. There's also direct sanctions on Putin and the oligarchs to take their yachts, seize their assets. The goal here is to make the oligarchs mad at Putin so they hopefully boot him. But all of that makes for a pretty brutal impact to the Russian economy. The main goals are to freeze out the very rich and make them mad at Putin and make it harder for Russia to finance their war efforts, but these sanctions exclude the backbone of Russia's economy. They're still getting about $1 billion a day in oil and gas payments, which is a lot of money. The oil and gas payments are effectively fueling the war, but it's a painfully delicate balance for the very energy-dependent West. As the German economy minister said, I wouldn't support an embargo on imports of fossil fuels from Russia. I would even speak out against it because we would threaten the social peace in the republic. That's a thinly veiled suggestion that if they sanction Russian oil and gas, all would not be peaceful on the Western Front. But everything is of course subject to change. It was once relatively unthinkable that Russia would be swifted, but that ended up happening too. This picture shows the difference between February 25th to March 2nd with regards to energy. Previously, the Biden administration would not sanction oil, but now they're like, nothing's off the table. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. With regards to energy markets in general, even though energy isn't sanctioned directly, it's still kind of sanctioned. Russian exports are down two and a half million barrels per day. Oil moved 20%, huge, huge moves in oil and natural gas, because nobody really wants to even look at Russian oil because of the fear of being hit by sanctions. Nobody wants to finance it, nobody wants to refine it, no tank wants to carry it, and it currently costs three and a half million dollars to hire a tank to carry it, a 300% increase since the invasion. So even though it's not sanctioned, it kind of is. And that's really not good from a pricing pressures perspective, because all of a sudden things get super expensive, and oils and every Everything, from skis to glasses to lipstick to cabinets. And that's like why there's going to be inflationary pressure from rising oil costs. Even if the West doesn't sanction Russian oil, oil, Russian oil is essentially sanctioning itself. If not oil, then coal, right? So Russia produces a huge amount of coal. Russia is just a huge energy producer. So there's just a lot of pressure on energy markets right now. There's a really good paper from the Oxford Institute that dives into this a little bit more, which is the main f focus being on the uncertainty of flows and, and just broader supply disruptions. And this gets into agriculture culture and commodities, so things are just super expensive here. The inflation pressure and the broader market risk is more than just pure energy. As the OEC's website highlights, which is really good, you should go check it out, the loss of these two breadbasket countries from the global food production process would not be good. Ukraine 
produces a ton of corn, a ton of wheat, a ton of iron ore, a ton of seed oil, and they're both just these huge producers of agriculture goods and the things that make agriculture goods like fertilizer. So we've seen huge spikes in wheat, soybeans, corn, and more because all of that is at risk now in the prices. And there's been just massive moves in commodities from milling wheat spiking 10% to cotton spiking 2%. And both Russia and Ukraine are really commodity lush. And there's also the concern of broader food stability. So I think the base case assumption here is that things are going to be expensive for a while longer. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but this sort of inflation is not going to be fixed by the Fed hiking rates. And this gets into monetary policy. First, the Russian central bank. So first off, sanctioning a central bank is a pretty big deal. And this is probably the biggest deal of all the sanctions. And that's what the West did. The EU announced that they would paralyze the assets of the Russian central bank and freeze its transactions, which worked because Putin's war chest was effectively cut in half overnight. And this is important because most of Russia's reserves are held outside of the country. So 78% of their $630 billion in reserves are held in China, France, Japan, Germany, the US, the UK, and elsewhere, according to Bloomberg. And for a quick note on China, a lot of people are like, China's going to come in and save Russia. China is about 14% of Russia's reserves. And they're a pretty confusing part of all of this. They have a nuclear pact with Ukraine and their broader temperament has shifted from, you know, this is the fault of the US to Russia and Ukraine seriously need to have some dialogue. So it doesn't seem like they're going to be swooping in to save Russia anytime soon. But anyway, the sanctioning that happened, it mobilized half of Russia's reserves. And that's really the broad goal to make it so the central bank can't come in and provide support to their economy and market. But energy payments are still coming through, allowing an element of central bank support. And if you're like, well, why energy? Like, come on. This is why this map. Europe is super reliant on Russian energy, which I've talked about a ton on this channel. And now we're seeing the consequences play out in real time. Can't have green energy policy without green energy investment, right? And this gets into sort of like broader financial structure. So you can't just remove a piece from the global Jenga tower that is the globalized financial system and not expect some of the tower to at least wobble a little bit. There's money markets. So there's worry that pushing Russia out of the global financial system will create some downstream consequences. Zoltan has been banging the war drum on this for a while now and really did a good odd lots episode, which basically boiled down into Russia is a huge leg of the broader financial architecture and just zapping them out of it isn't going to be great for the West and create some risks. As Riddle highlights, at the end of 2021, Russian trade with countries outside the former USSR and China amounted to 556 billion and Western investments in Russia exceeded 500 billion. Like the risks of the Jenga tower are pretty large. As Tracy Alloway wrote, many of Russia's foreign currency reserves are held in euros at national central banks and now are effectively locked up and off limits for lending out into wider markets, which essentially boils down into liquidity worries, collateral problems, mispayments, and people running for dollars, and broader stress on the banking system because of the frozen $300 billion of Russian foreign currency. Basically, the wheels on the bus of the financial system could get some flat tires, and that could prevent the whole thing from moving forward like it's supposed to. As Matt Klein highlights, banks and the allied countries that could therefore be facing more than $100 billion of losses now that sanctions have largely cut off the Russian financial system from access. So there's just a lot of plumbing and a lot of interconnectivity, and with MCSI removing Russian stocks, those trying to buy the dip on the RSX or holding Russian debt might be wrecked, <laughs> to use a scientific term. And this gets into reserves. So this central bank might be wrecked too. This is a big deal. 
Paul wrote a piece for the Financial Times about international capital markets and Russia. Quote, it has allowed the country to import a degree of institutional certainty, vast foreign reserves and reserve currencies, and the use of Western courts for dispute resolution. This is an important point from Nick Trickett, where reserves don't equal stability. Um, basically, you know, you can have all the reserves you want, but that doesn't mean that you're stable. Reserves aren't this, like, save-all be-all. And then Matt Levine, of course, had a good take. Reserves don't equal money-money, so foreign currency reserves are not an objective fact. They're mostly a series of entries on lists maintained by foreign currency issuers, etc. And Adam Tews had a really good analysis on all of this, pointing out that there were three main ways to see reserves. So Russia's reserves are a national strategic buffer, so it helps to prop up the value of the ruble and slow the process of devaluation. But the problem is, of course, like a lot of their reserves are in euros and dollars, and if you're sanctioned, that no longer works anymore because you can no longer prop up your system. He also points out that reserves are a surplus of unspent revenue squeezed out of the Russian economy. Basically, that means that a lot of this has been putting a lot of pressure on the Russian people, and they're sort of facing the consequences of the actions of Russia, obviously. Not only from a sanctioning perspective, but from a monetary perspective, and they have been for a while. Reserves are also petrodollars, so this is sort of a concerning part too, and gets into Zoltan's earlier point. Petrodollars are recycled, meaning that the money that Russia accumulated is part of a much broader financial system. So these petrodollars are circulating in European banks as IOUs, and as Adam writes, the Russian funds in European central banks are not simply pools of money sitting idly. They are part of a complex change of transactions that may now be put in jeopardy by the sanctions. And that impacts everybody, not just Russia. And Michael Pettis, of course, had a really good analysis on this too, ultimately boiling down to the difficulty that will come to sort of like fix this and to offload these imbalances and how there isn't really a good answer for Russia here, of course, which is by design. So yikes, right? Like what's the central bank going to do? Things are not looking so great for Russia. The Russian government has been doing a lot to try and stabilize their economy, but it isn't as easy as 2014 where they could simply swoop in and, and prop up the ruble. They've spent one trillion in rubles to try and buy shares of sanctioned companies. They've banned foreign investors from exiting local assets and they're not paying coupons and local government bonds. They're not allowing Russians to send money abroad. And now there's the little worries of default risk because of that, because if you don't send money abroad, how are you going to pay your debt back? They're making companies sell 80% of their foreign currency gains. The central bank has doubled the interest rate to 20% and sold 26 billion at a limitless one-day repo auction, and the Moscow exchange just literally has not reopened, and the central bank has bought a lot of gold. The thing is that Russia still has energy payments coming through, which amount to, you know, $1 billion a day, giving the central bank a little bit of leverage in managing the economic downfall. Uh, so with oil near 120 now, they're going to bring in maybe $120 billion extra revenue this year. So as oil goes up more, Russia is going to make more money. So that's kind of the thing with energy payments and how they're able to circumnavigate some of this. But things are just broadly not looking good. As Julia Friedlander said, you impoverish Russia through sanctions, but they destroy Ukraine in the process and no one gets anything. And this gets into the currency. So the ruble has been doing not good. The ruble has become rubble. Things are pretty wacky. There's just a worry of, of liquidity in those foreign exchange markets and just a large amount of risk coming in from just broader uncertainty and what that means for the ruble. And of course, if your currency becomes unusable, you're in a world of pain and the central bank might return to the gold standard considering the massive amounts of gold that they have, but it, it's largely uncertain what's going to happen. And this gets into the dollar because, of course, a lot of people have started I've always been questioning the dollar's role during all of this too, and it's essentially become a weapon, right, in its own right. One must imagine that China's watching this and is like okay, time to rotate away from the US dollar, and Powell confirmed that in his Senate hearing on Thursday. And Zoltan has pointed out that other countries are going to follow suit. If you wield the dollar as punishment, people are going to try and avoid being punished. A Wall Street Journal article wrote, barring gold, these assets' money are someone else's life 
liability, someone who can just decide they're worth nothing. So the dollar has sort of kind of lost this notion of a store of value because all of a sudden the spigot was turned off, right? Like all of a sudden the dollar was not the dollar. It was something that somebody could decide the worth of. For example, Iran is charging in euros versus dollars and new con for new contracts because a lot of countries are kind of getting spooked out by this, I think. But dollars are still in demand as a safe haven. So like sure, people can transact in euros, but you know, the USD is still that girl. I think Alan Cole had a really good take here. So he said, financial commentators love talking about the dollar losing its status as reserve currency because it gives them permission to widely speculate. For countries seeking a relatively neutral and rules-based system free of geopolitics, China is not a good alternative. It has a variety of foreign policy demands of its own and it uses economic might to help enforce them. So like sure you can use the euro, but like the dollar is China's currency, but really the dollar is probably going to be just the best global option for reserve currency just because of the power of the US. But who knows? So this gets into companies. So companies are also exiting and refusing to do business with Russia, with Shell announcing that they would exit from their equity partnerships with Gazprom, the big gas producer. Apple's refusing to sell their products there and banks are halting operations entirely, except for, of course, Deutsche Bank, because of course Deutsche Bank would, would stay, right? Same with Credit Suisse. Uh, there seems to be a moral, you know, get the heck out of Russia sort of imperative. And a lot of companies are following that moral imperative. And it would make sense that Credit Suisse and Deutsche would stay considering the moral imperative, right? EA is simply deleting Russia. And all this makes sense because if you mess with sanctions, you get in trouble. So companies are going to try and avoid that. And this gets into the people. So the Russian people have, you know, a lot of them do not support the war. They do not support Putin. They're facing high inflation, crumbling businesses, isolation, and their standard of living is likely to decline. A lot of them just fled the country. The whole point of these sanctions are to try and, you know, get Putin to stop and say, well, I just, you know, wrecked my economy and now my people hate me. So maybe I should stop. You know, people started panic buying luxury goods as an attempt to salvage value. There have been runs on ATMs and a Russian stock market expert is going back to being Santa Claus. But Putin does not care. He does not care about his people. The focus is really getting on oligarchs and around him to pause and say, you know, hey buddy, I just had my yacht seized. You need to go. And there was a really good article on the, on the real feelings of Russian officials. This is a quote. Nobody rejoices. Many understand that this is a mistake, but on duty, they come up with some explanation for themselves to somehow put it in their heads. One Russian official quit and several have been like, hmm, yeah, this isn't the coolest thing ever, but there's going to be more noise. And this gets into Putin and rationality. So Putin is just not rational. He invaded the largest country in Europe on the basis of actually this is mine. He's frustrated and a frustrated person clearly never makes good decisions. Fiona Hill had a really good interview and I think it's the best explanation of Putin that you could get. Every time you think, no, he wouldn't, would he? Uh, well, yes, he would. And he wants us to know that. Putin seems to have his finger dangerously close to the nuclear button. Other foreign leaders are turning against him, so maybe he'll get the hint. But as Michael Horowitz wrote in his 2018 research paper studying leaders in military conflict, this institutional and personal context may make Putin more risk acceptant. That is, more willing to gamble on dangerous nuclear threats to save his regime than other leaders. It also likely makes him more paranoid. These tendencies, again, reinforce Forced the escalatory dangers stemming from Putin's recent decision. So, like as many have said before, Putin is irrational and treating him as if he is rational is flawed. And then, of course, you know, Ukrainian people have been fighting for their lives and their country, and over 1 million people have fled to the EU, with estimates that over 4 million people will seek refuge there. Ukraine applied for EU membership alongside Georgia and Moldova. So, getting into crypto, crypto has gotten a lot of tension from two main angles. Number one, Russia will use crypto as a tool to evade sanctions. No. <laughs> 
Uh, no, they won't, but people might. So the Russian people do seem to be buying little bits of crypto to try and seek stability as they face mega inflation, but nothing massive. The Russian government can and will not use crypto. There's a really good thread from Jake debunking this, but his main idea was that the blockchain is literally a public ledger. And so everybody would be able to see what's going on. And of course, Putin is a control freak. So why would he ever want decentralized currency? Another point is that Ukraine is accepting crypto donations, which is really good. They've probably raised north of 40 million to $100 million from crypto alone. However, the Ukrainian government was like, we're going to airdrop everybody who donates a token, which I don't know why they said that, but the government was then like, you know, we're in the middle of war. So like, maybe not right now. And then the crypto community was immediately like, oh, is this a rug pull? Which is just like, sure, I get it. Having a token is great and all, but it's a donation, not an investment. And Russia is working on a digital one world, one currency. So lots of digital assets around here. I'm very interested to see how crypto regulation will triangulate around all of this. Will it become the tool of the future or will government end up squashing it because of the broader risk that they could see like you know people evading sanctions through crypto. Peter Zihan has been writing about a lot of things and he was essentially like crypto will go to zero because of this so I don't I hope he's not right but it's just worrying. Regulation is always worrying around crypto. So getting into the broad market Moscow exchange is never going to open again it seems which makes it difficult to determine exactly what's going to happen. The Russian market has tanked and getting into the US market and monetary policy Jerome Powell testified in front of Congress this week and was like yeah we're going to raise by 25 basis points in March considering all this inflation. And the market was like, that's right, buddy. Like, sounds good to us. He highlighted geopolitical risk, but made it pretty clear that the Fed was going to hike this mountain in March and going to take something pretty big to stop them. Not a war though, apparently. Uh, Bullard has been banging his drum and like, we should have hiked yesterday. Nice. But it does seem like the Fed is really focused on taming inflation. Biden made a sort of funny comment during the State of Union when discussing inflation where he was telling companies to simply cut costs and manage it, which like doesn't really work considering that literally everything is super expensive and wages are not growing. So like, I don't know what they're going to do about that. So the Fed is going to try and play catch up as we enter into arguably one of the most uncertain times in recent history. So that should be an interesting experiment. Powell says the economy isn't that intertwined with Russia, but we all know that, you know, globalization, comparative advantages, are that little pillar holding up big economy. The ECB will likely be moving in a different direction because of their energy exposure. Also because their market is pretty red because of inflation risks that they have. They have they're facing probably higher inflation and concern than the US. But you know things are looking bleak. Uh, stagflation is a big worry. General ideas like we're probably going to enter a recession, like maybe a baby one, a little growth slowdown just as a treat, coupled with outrageous prices and things will recover pretty quickly. Then be back on all cylinders as John Kemp highlighted. The yield curve is inverting almost. So things are not looking super hot for the US economy, but they're also like not looking bad. So it's just like kind of that weird thing where like data and expectations might be diverging. Yeah, it's probably going to change how our economy grows. Germany is going to spend a lot more on defense spending. Europe is going to classify weapons as ESG. And I think a lot of people are going to demand that some manufacturing becomes domestic again. And so this could be hopefully an era of like really solid geopolitical relations, but more country independence. The broad stock market is trying to figure out what's going on. People are buying RSX, which is a Russian ETF, because it's dipping, and they're like, buy the dip, which, um... You know, markets aren't moral, but a lot of investors are really used to buying and holding and thing go up because that's been the environment for the past couple of years. But thing don't always go up, thing go down and things stay down. So we'll see how that RSX trade plays out. Just look at Credit Suisse. They were like, we're going to securitize some yachts and, you know, things go up. And now those yachts are being seized and they're telling people to destroy their documents. So be careful out there. So final thoughts. Nobody wants a war except for Putin. Russian soldiers appeared to be blindsided by the invasion, stating that they 
didn't expect this to happen. A final quote from Zelensky, when I plan to become president, I said that each of us is the president because we are all responsible for our state, for our beautiful Ukraine. Now it has happened that each of us is a warrior and I am confident that each of us will win. So yeah, that is the Russia-Ukraine update. I will be back next week with another update. This is a newsletter if you want to go read it. I'm on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube. Hope everybody is doing well and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.